If you have your Bibles, I it's not my custom to read from different books uh, just at the beginning, but I'm compelled to do this today. We have to begin in Psalm 147, and there are three verses of our of interest for us. Not every psalm was written by King David. There were other writers that wrote, some Asaph, some from the sons of Korah, nondescript or unnamed sources. Uh, Psalm 147 is one of those psalms. It is a a recollection of what has happened. And it's also a prophetic word of what shall happen. Um, In later Jewish customs and times, Psalm 47 was utilized as part of their New Year service. So if you were part of a of a Jewish New Year celebration, uh, this would be one of the psalms that would be read as a custom. Verse 1, Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God. Who knows that's true? You know that sometimes you just have to pause and sing praises. This is without condition. For it is pleasant and praise is comely. That means it's it's beautiful. Another portion of scripture says praise is comely for the upright. You never look so good than when you're praising the Lord. Verse 2. The Lord doth build up Jerusalem. Now we're in reflection and in prophetic word. He gathereth together the outcast of Israel. Did you know how many people, how many Jewish people are leaving right now Ukraine? They're going back home. This is a prophetic word that the Jews would return to Jerusalem, to Israel, right before the coming of the Lord. Not only did it happen then, but it's happening now, even now. In fact, from 1948 to today... Millions of Jews have returned back to Jerusalem, to Israel, rather, to the, to the nation. He gathers together the outcast of Israel. And here's where we're landing today, verse 3. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. Amen. Hold, hold that verse in your hand. Now, we, now we're reading from 2 Samuel. There's a couple different verses in 2 Samuel. When I get to chapter 23, this is speaking of David's guard. There's there's select men in the king's guard. I'm just drafting from one of those verses so that we can understand family relationship. These are not names that we have to memorize, but there's just one name that we that we need to know, maybe two. Among his guards was Eliphalet, the son of Ahashbai, the son of the Mahakathite. Another one of those men were, was Eliam, the son of Ahithophel. So Ahithophel was the father and Eliam was the son. Everybody got that right there? Was that your favorite verse in the Bible already? Did you know that? 
you have that on your refrigerator? Eliam, the son of Ahithophel. Now back up just 12 chapters to go to chapter 11. And we'll read one verse from there. This is a tragic and pivotal point in the history of Israel and of David. Verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 3 rather. Second uh, Samuel chapter 11, verse 3. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And someone said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Ahithophel, his son is Eliam, his daughter is Bathsheba. Everybody got it? Now, I I don't know about you, but uh, my father-in-law who's here today, Papa Joe, that's my papa too. That's my dad too. And um, when I got married, I had multiple sets of, of, of parents, not just my own. Now I have, and that's how we all feel. And um, upon introduction, we would say, this is my grandson and my granddaughter. And that's how it should be. And this is exactly what the scripture is uh, referring to. All right. When the Lord spoke to me and I wrote this uh, down, I knew that it, would, it was a task that could only be fulfilled by the Holy Spirit. And so, even though this may not be my complete pattern um, or a preference, it, it is uh, what the Lord has provided. So I'll break the bread and he'll bless it. And uh, whatever comes of it, it's got to be of, of God anyway. And so, I'm going to press upon you that hear the word to engage as closely as you can because the Lord's going to help us today. And someone in this house, maybe many, and someone who hears this later on this week or in months to come, you're going to be healed. There's a healing coming. The healer of all things is in this room right now to heal you. Now, he gave me the word, but he di- didn't give me the title. So, <laughs> so I struggle with the title because we need a title to identify what I preached. So I'll just put the title on the board and then just let me get to it. Amen. Everyone said amen. Now we need your help, Lord. For the next few moments, guide us. provide something here we cannot provide ourselves. I need this. And there are so many that need today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. And when you get seated, just put your Bibles in your laps and clap to the Lord and shout unto God and praise Him and rejoice in the Lord. He is good to you.
22 times the King James Bible uses the word bitterness. Some verses refer to sorrow. Others to shame. Some peer into the depths of loss and death, tragedies without explanation. Hannah once prayed for a son. Her barren condition left her empty and no amount of good or kind gifts from her husband could fill that clear void. Hannah was in the company of Rachel who said, give me children or else I die. Hannah was in the temple praying for a son so overwhelmed by the emptiness that her pastor thought she was drunk and he scolded her. Her prayer was so intense that it consumed her, the staggering, bending depth of her sorrow. The Bible says it this way in 1 Samuel, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed it to the Lord and wept sore. Hannah is joined by many people. The ages cast a gathering net to encompass the many who have felt the void, that particular emptiness, the bitterness of soul. There are others who are described in such terms. While Hannah held on to nothing, Job lost everything that was in his hands. Job's sorrow was so profound that he allowed himself an open display of pain. He said, Therefore I will not refrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. He just could not contain the deaths of his children, the loss of all that he knew it spilled out of his mouth, the bitterness of soul. We read of him, but I wonder who could relate to the trial of Job in a single day. A violent wind took the bounty of his wealth and crushed the lives of his children. The hedge was removed and Job's own words could not be withheld. Anguish, sorrow, the bitter taste of loss. There are many forms of bitterness. There are other forms. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 17.25, A foolish son is a grief to his father. And bitterness to her that bear him. A foolish son. He's more than just wayward. He speaks without a filter. He lives with his own pleasure. He has no honor, no respect. He has no work ethic. He is a foolish son. In other verses, he is a son without morals or disciplines. And despite the efforts of his father and the guidance of his mother, he lives haphazardly. His mother, who once held his innocence and nourished him, the feelings are all gone. She suffers in bitterness. Maybe she regrets something untaught or unsaid. Maybe she feels the sting of her own inability to guide her son correctly. He is bitterness to her that bear him. And there's more. Hezekiah spoke of his. He prayed for an extension of life. His prayer also spoke of the deep desire to live a little while longer. God answered that prayer, but before the answer came, Hezekiah thought, Isaiah 38 and 15, he thought, I shall go softly all my years in the bitterness of my soul. Perhaps it was his way of saying, I'm angry that I'm about to die. Hezekiah wanted to live. I'm just angry. There's a bitterness of my soul. 
And then Ezekiel will write of his word. Tragedies unfolding, a nation collapsing, the bitterness of a broken heart. He was a prophet preaching without anyone responding. He spoke with the likes of Jeremiah of whom they called the weeping prophet. There is no greater heartbreak than to have thrown out the lifeline of God's word and watch those who are drowning cast it aside. It's a bitterness of unspeakable proportions. All those definitions are found in the scripture. All of them can lead to the final subject of which I speak. They can all lead to this. But there is one remaining that is the most egregious of them all. The final reference is the enlistment of an offense. It is a rejection It's a wound, intentional or otherwise, which alters the heart. Some offenses change the way people live. Some wounds have changed the course of what people do, how they think, the absence of so many things. And I am led not to simply pronounce the various offenses that lead to bitterness, but there is something about Jesus today that wants to heal your life. You've been struggling for a long, long time. You've learned to cope, but you've never been healed. We take such great strides to seek physical healings. We did this earlier in our service. We did it last night in our prayer time. And I'm going to join every effort every time. But there is a healing that goes beyond the physical frame of this frail body. There is a healing of your heart. And if pressed today... I would say that a healed heart is far greater than a healed body. Jesus is the healer. He wants to heal your physical affliction, but he also wants to heal your heart. Healed hearts last for a lifetime. Healed bodies always return to pain. Healed minds... And hearts and spirits bring fresh vision and fresh purpose. Healed sicknesses provide just temporary reprieves. Pain is going to come again. You will be tried in your own body. Your joints, your body, your strength, your muscles, your bones. But the depths of all trials don't land in your physical realm. It is the core of your mind and your spirit. The thoughts. Hurts. That medicine cannot mend. But Jesus can mend them. Jesus took the stripes on his back. He was bruised and he was wounded. The bruising was inside of that. The wounds were external. Then he took the crown of thorns on his head. Long thorns pressed down into his brow. Every thought, every grief, every anguish. He is the healer of both the physical and the mental. He is the healer of both the body and the soul. And beyond the things of of our body's limits, where aches and pains do exist, there is the suffering of wounds that haunt our minds and our thoughts. Past wounds and offenses that cause us to grow awkwardly and they casually stroll through the corridors of our memory. They live in the recesses of our wounded spirits. All these words that I speak today, the Lord gave me them for you. Some through inspiration, but most Of this is through experience. I'll point to our text for a moment. With a little discovery, we understand the family structure of the Bible's key figures. 
So much wisdom is found in the facets of their relationships. Perhaps of all the Bible's patriarchs, prophets, and kings, none are more known than the psalmist himself, David. David's fame began at a young age, and and it's lasted for thousands of years. He was and he is the most prized leader of Israel's history. Any artifact tied to King David is both rare and valuable even now today. David's life has been so thoroughly exposed. Very few people would wish for such a thing. I I know people say that they're transparent and they're open and they're honest. (laughs) Yeah, probably not. If you sat in David's seat, I doubt you could bear the scrutiny. Every infraction and every failure would be exposed and everyone would read about it for thousands of years. David fought Goliath. He was anointed by the prophet Samuel. He honored his wicked leader and he sang and wrote of his love for God. But David also had failures, the mounting of which bears a heavy load. None was greater than the day he stayed home from battle and had an illicit affair with a woman he saw from afar. As grand as we might think of the kingdom, Israel's main leadership was but a handful of men. David's counselors were few. His mighty men were were but 30. There was a few others that followed Entry into the royal pavilion was received, but only by appointment. Only a few men might journey there unannounced, standing before the king, this warrior king, singer, musician, artist, giant killer. Nathan, the prophet, was unique. He came without notice. There seemed to be no appointment necessary for the likes of Nathan. Prophets, real prophets, are are unaccustomed to the pomp of kings. They always come with a purpose. In the list of names, we find the woman with whom David had an affair. Her name was Bathsheba. The grandfather of Bathsheba was Ahithophel. Ahithophel had Eliam. Eliam had Bathsheba. Ahithophel was David's chief counselor and advisor. He stood next to the king. He knew David very well. Ahithophel was a solid man, or so it seemed. While there were a few disputes along the way, Ahithophel guided King David in matters of the nation and of war. But when Absalom rebelled, Absalom, David's son, when Absalom rebelled, Ahithophel took occasion and turned against David. Ahithophel was that angry son of David. He desired to steal the throne and kill his own father in the process. And when he rebelled, Ahithophel, David's wise counselor, joined himself to David's rebellious son. He left the king. He joined the rebellion and took part of the coup. On the surface, it was a strange and bewildering betrayal. How could a man so closely related to the matters and decisions of the throne turn away so quickly? He had prominence and position. He was respected and empowered. He had need of nothing. It appears that many Bible readers move past the moment of Absalom's rebellion without consideration of who followed him and why. Perhaps they just don't know that Ahithophel loved Uriah, his grandson, the great and loyal warrior. The pride of a grandfather for his granddaughter and her warrior husband was so profound and deep that Uriah's death did not go unnoticed You see, David tried to cover up his sin 
by having Uriah killed on the battlefield. The murder of Uriah rippled through time and sent Ahithophel, the grandfather, into a state of anger and rage. Hidden as it might have been, those feelings would eventually rise to the surface. The story of Uriah spread throughout the kingdom. It made its way to the armies of Israel. Uriah even found entry into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I'll read it to you from Matthew chapter 1 verse 6. Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been, here it is, Uriah's wife. The call out was intentional. The Jewish people never forgot Uriah's deep devotion to King David. Bathsheba found her sorrow in the death of her firstborn son and the loss of her husband, whom she betrayed. But the nation grieved for the loss of Uriah, the whole nation. Bathsheba's sin also followed her into the annals of Matthew's gospel. Uriah was a hero among the people of Israel for centuries following. And it is a telling thing that Bathsheba's name was omitted from the Bible and replaced for Uriah's wife. Matthew does not mention her by name, just Uriah's wife. It is quite apparent From the Hebrew perspective, that while David moved forward and Solomon was eventually born, Ahithophel, the grandfather, never recovered. David killed Uriah, and then David repented, and then David lived on, but Ahithophel never forgot. Loyalty was lost among them all. David forsook his loyalty, his loyalty to the calling, his loyalty to his own wife back home, and his loyalty to his faithful warrior Uriah. He forsook all of that in a time through that lingering root of bitterness. Ahithophel also abandoned his loyalty to King David. Bitterness. Bitterness. It is the poison of the ages. There is no chemical or venom more damaging or long-lasting than the taste of bitterness. Bitterness. The seed and the root. It has taken down the mightiest of men. It has destroyed the most profound women. It has eroded kingdoms. Devastated businesses. It has crippled homes and marriages and redirected destinies. It knows no comfort and has no friends. It has no respect of persons. It's not bound by dispensations or languages or philosophies. Regardless of lands or nations, learning or status, there is no barrier bitterness cannot climb. From the young to the old, from the illiterate to the intellectual, bitterness has consumed them all. Don't ever underestimate the power of a seed. Seed grows into trees. They become weeds and brushes. They overtake walkways and passageways. Seeds develop into roots. That little thing may not stay little for long. And from it can come the root of bitterness, which has the power to do what great armies cannot do. The root can change the course of a nation. It can twist truth. It can crush hopes and swallow up entire churches and ministries. The seed and then the root. We should take note today that David was openly judged and rebuked. He did not escape the judgment of our holy God. David was exposed fully. Nathan the prophet did not spare the king any shame. Nathan pointed his finger at David and said, Thou art the man, you did it, David. You took another man's wife. You oversaw the murder of an innocent man that was loyal to you. Nathan the prophet made an open reproach 
known for all the world to see. The entire Psalm 51 is David's heartbreaking prayer of repentance for what he had done. He cried, he cried, my sin is ever before me. It never went away. The moment was with him forever, forever and ever, but not to him only. A thousand years later, Matthew wrote Uriah's wife because some stains cannot be removed. David did not escape. What he did was, was not hidden, but at least he repented. At least he groaned for the mercy of God. He laid on the ground on the dust and dirt for seven days in prayer. He did not eat. He put on sackcloth and ashes. And even at the bequest of his own royal family and guard, he would not get up from the, from the ashes and the dirt. He cried and repented. And he asked God for a healing. But Ahithophel, his counselor, Bathsheba's grandfather, he never got over what happened. Ahithophel took up the offense and a seed was planted and then a root of bitterness grew in his heart. He left David when Absalom rebelled. He joined the other side. He turned his back on the king. But his betrayal of David did not happen overnight. Ahithophel was not some disjointed man looking for the next great thing. He did not need an advancement in a new kingdom. In fact, chances are that he cared nothing for Absalom. For he left Absalom when his advice was not followed. No, Ahithophel was just bitter. The seed and the root of bitterness choked out his sound judgment. It devoured his senses like it does everyone. It burned inside of him all those years and it finally burst forth. David's son was just the open door for the seed and root of bitterness to be shown and exposed. It's not always seen in the same way, ladies and gentlemen. Bitterness is masked in so many ways. It hides in shadows. It positions itself in other offenses far removed from its original inception. Very few people would even admit that they are bitter. Get a big crowd. Ask everyone who's bitter to raise their hand. Very few. Not me, me? Not me. Do you have bitterness? Not me. The Lord has helped me. Yes. Mm -hmm. But their lives and decisions say otherwise. If you listen closely, you can hear the sound of their beating, wounded heart that has never been healed. Some are continually critical. Bitterness comes through their critical spirit. Everything's wrong with the world. Nothing's ever right. First thing out of their mouth is a complaint. It's a complaint about other things. It really doesn't address what happened years ago. Something has happened and those memories still walk the halls of their mind. Other people are angry while, while others are accusatory. Blame and division are layers in their words. Some are sharp and others are shy. Some speak of the offenses against them. A bitter root is buried, but it will always find a way to spring up bitterness. Many who are bound by bitterness look for allies to support their painful experiences. They need ears to hear them. They need friends. 
They are in constant recruitment of someone else to join them. Partners to share in their experiences. Never really seeking for forgiveness. Never really offering the same. They just live according to what has hurt them. I was in the middle of my college experiences. I went down to a camp meeting. I was a little older than the kids there, but I had a lot of friends. It was about an hour away. When I was driving back home, I passed over a hill. There's a hill there. and It's about two miles from where we lived, and we lived next door to the church. When I passed over the hill, it was probably 11 or 12 o'clock at night. I saw flame rise into the sky. It lit up the hill where our church was. When I, when I got there, the fire trucks were already there, and the side of our church building was on fire The fire consumed it. It went up just so quickly. My brother had already married. He had moved moved away. So it was just mom, dad, and Dana. I parked my car and ran to them. And we stood and hugged each other as we watched dad's office burn. Every book that he ever had. Every memory. All the things the missionaries had given him for all those decades of times. Things that my dad collected. If you know anything about my dad, he never throws anything away. He is the hoarder's hoarder. We can make a lot of money off my dad if we could just follow him around. I finally gathered up all of his tape measures. There are dozens of tape measures. We're going to sell them for the building fund. Because he's unorganized, he just bought another one and then another one. He has a tape measure marking the birth of all of his children, grandchildren, and friends. All of his things burned up in that fire. Everything that he loved. The sanctuary was 1,300 degrees. The ladies' group, mom leading all the charge with all of her work, sweat, and tears, had just bought a piano. It was a K. Kawaya piano. It was a beautiful, dark walnut piano. We bought it because at one of our programs, my brother was playing the old piano. It was an old rickety piano. It had an old bench. And the service was over, and Scott pushed back from the piano. But when he did that, The front leg of the old piano caved in and the whole piano fell to the ground and it just shattered. That was the end of one of our wonderful church experiences when my brother broke the church piano. Great moment of our life. I I thought it was the funniest thing. My mom was crying. But the ladies got together and they had bake sales at Walmart, which we always loved because we could eat things before they brought the things to Walmart. We mostly ate all of their profits. And they bought this piano with several thousands of dollars and everyone was so proud. It was the finest thing in that old rickety building. But when the fire came, it was 1300 degrees in the sanctuary. The walls opened up and that piano melted to the floor. All of my dad's things in his office were gone, burned to a crisp. It took six months for the fire marshal to finally figure out where the exact location of the fire began. It began in an outlet that was next to a kerosene heater. An old Sunday school room. 
But between that time, there were some people in our church that decided that they wanted to take over one of the ministers. And we moved from that place. Of course, there was no place to have church. So we, so my dad's good friend, Mr. Blossom, let us have church in the funeral home parlor. And he would close the door to the other side where the dead, I see dead people. I would just even think, man, if we really get this going, people could come out of those caskets. I was not happy about it. (laughs) I did not want to be there. I would just say, don't go in that room. We were told that one of our members told the fire marshal that we burned the church down. And so they interviewed me and my little sister. I was so mad and angry. I didn't say any bad words. And I don't really know how to use them correctly with the syntax, but I was wondering why I had not practiced heretofore. Man, when we found out that it was somebody, and then when we found out who it was, and he was leading songs in the funeral parlor for church, I bent down, laid on the floor, halfway back in that old funeral parlor, wept and cried, begged my mom and dad, let's get out of this town. I was so consumed with bitterness. Two couples decided, we'll take over. They didn't take over. They just left. By the time the news and the reports came out, the damage had already been done. And oh, the bitterness in my heart. It was clouding my thinking. I thought to myself, I'll just, I'll just get an education. Law school, here I come. Got my LSAT done in in the middle of my MBA. Going to work on my Japanese language. I don't know why. I just thought these are great things. I'll just get lost in it. I went to work for the university and just took as many classes as I could. Just drowned myself in education. I don't even know how many credit hours I have. Just took everything that I could all the time. Just me and Dr. Ewald, we just mounted me up with homework. And that's what I did. Until one day... Someone got a hold of me and transported my life and I moved in a whirlwind, not wanting to move to Indianapolis. And when I got to Indianapolis, the Lord reconstructed my life. And then, and then I joined the singing group and, and we started to sing. And then, and then they said, we're going to go down to a, to a conference in Louisiana. It's a big church. It's going to be a big conference and we're going to sing. So I, I went, I'd never been there before, but I, I got on the platform and I sang and, and, and the Lord helped me. And then uh, they said, where do you want to sit? And Jeffrey, where do you want to go? And, 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 and the pastor's wife said, well, well, would you like to, I said, I want to go up, up top. I want to get, and they got a folding chair, a metal folding chair for me right next to the rail. And I had my notebook and, and, and brother Cole was preaching. And as he was preaching, he was striking at the bitter root in my heart. And I looked down and in that meeting, I saw all four of those people that had ruined my life and accused us falsely. And something lifted. 
And I walked down that steep area, down those stairs. And the move of the Spirit was going on. And some were standing, some were seated, some were at the altar. And I walked out and I saw them there. And they were just sitting there in a row. And I laid my whole body over all four of them. They could not move. I laid on their laps. They couldn't even get out. And I felt their hands. It must have been awkward for them. I wasn't even thinking of it. I was weeping. They put their hands on the back of my legs, the back of my head. And and I wept over them. Because a root of bitterness was going to destroy me. And it didn't matter how they felt about me. It mattered if I released them in my own heart. And I thought that I would never have to deal with bitterness again. I'm just going to tell everybody, there's always a present seed waiting for you around the next corner. I suppose that the subject would be just as well left alone today. If it was just a common aspect of people that were in the world and lost. But many people who call themselves Christians are dealing with this all the while withholding forgiveness and healing from those who offended them. See, if you do that, you have no real relationship with the death of Jesus Christ. Now, I've watched dozens and dozens of people walk in this very room wearing shiny crosses on their lapels and around their neck and on their Bible. But they don't have any relationship with that. Many Christians today have a cross pin and a cross brooch. And let me just tell you, that's just an ornament without forgiveness from you. That's just an ornament. In fact, it might just be jewelry. That way they wear it. That way they can wear a cross and wear the offense at the same time. And many people are bearing crosses, but they're not rugged crosses. They're silver crosses. They're platinum crosses. They're gold crosses. And they also are holding on to their offense. Just to make it clear one more time. David did the most dreadful thing. He took the one lamb that belonged to another and he committed an intentional murder. He conspired to cover up his adulterous behavior with lies and deceptions. But when it all failed, he just killed the man whose loyalty was without question. David had no defense or justification for his actions, and God judged him aptly for it. His kingdom would be fractured in time. His family would be splintered in ways that we cannot imagine. His monetary gratification became a lifetime of turmoil. That's what adultery does. David was wrong indeed. He needed God. He begged God for mercy and for help. He pleaded with God to blot out my transgressions. Oh God, please forget. Please forget. Blot it out. But Ahithophel never forgot. He remembered what happened to his granddaughter's husband and he never let it go. Maybe he thought about that precious couple, their union and their youthful love. They were his family, his kids, and David the king with everything tore them apart. 
Ahithophel knew that David could not, could, could, could have any, he could have any wife he wanted. He also knew David's temperament and he knew David's lust. He knew or he found out that David had a plot concerning his grandson and it burned inside of him for years to come. Oh, the root. It has so much time to grow. Ahithophel drank the poison and it coursed through his veins and it changed his spirit. The unchallenged, the unchecked wound will consume any life. No one is strong enough or wise enough or talented enough to escape the offense that has not been addressed. Roots will either be pulled up or they will consume. They will either be, either be cut out or they will ruin. They never go away on their own. They fester. They grow in strength. They redirect decisions. They lie in wait, but they never disappear. Ahithophel never dealt with the pain that David caused. And eventually, ultimately, it came to destroy him. In the end, ladies and gentlemen, you can read this in your Bible. When Absalom would surely be defeated and his coup had failed. When David's army was set to take back Jerusalem and recover the throne. Ahithophel left Absalom. He returned back home and he committed suicide and hung himself and died. And the precedent remains. Unresolved bitterness always causes self-destruction. I don't know how you're dealing with this word today, but this is what the Lord gave to me, and I have to share it with you. There are three major results of bitterness. First, bitterness causes us to change our lives. There is a distortion in how we live. Choices changed. Everything's affected from food to clothes. From attitude to friendships, a bitter spirit wears a lens that taints every aspect of life. Education is is viewed differently and commitments are viewed differently and relationships take on conditions that would not normally be present because of bitterness. Some people will live defensively, always suspect of the intentions of other people. Someone will say to them, I love you, I care about you, but because of the bitterness you can't receive it. It's hard to receive it. Others will live for the thrill of the moment, always seeking to escape the wound levied against them. And then addictions are soon to follow. They just want to have fun all the time. It's really born from a root of bitterness. The second result is that a bitter root finds unsuspecting people to share in the pain. No one ever stays bitter by themselves. People share their wounds. They'll even expose their pain and impose their pain on others. Who never experienced it. Other people become bitter with them. Ultimately, all bitterness defiles both the host and those who are near. Friends and family take on the hurt as if it belonged to them. Hebrews 12. Looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. And thereby defile many. And finally, bitterness... Bitterness results in a lost soul. Salvation is free because Jesus forgives. The cross of Calvary features this element in life's troubles. The psalmist prophesied, here's Psalm 69. Watch this. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. It's a very interesting, leave that up there. It's a very interesting scripture. It's a prophetic verse. And it's very odd. Because if you go down... To when it actually happened in Matthew 27, 34, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when he tasted thereof, he would not drink it. How does that compute? You see, the drink in this verse is vinegar mixed with gall. It was a drink given to victims 
to deaden their pain. But Jesus refused it because he had to feel every wound and strike against him. So he rejected the painkiller. But the cup of Psalm 69 was not the cup of Matthew 27. 69 was a prophetic cup that Jesus accepted when he prayed in Matthew 26, 39. He went a little farther. He fell on his face and prayed saying, Oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. He took the cup. Jesus took the cup of sorrow and pain so that we could be free from sorrow and pain. He drank the bitter cup of every offense and every wounded heart. He rejected the painkiller, but he drank the cup of bitterness. He paid the price for every infraction and sin that we have committed and everything committed against us. And then he redeemed us with his own blood and he gave us a brand new life. But his forgiveness makes a demand on us. We must forgive those who hurt us. Luke 6, 37, forgive and ye shall be forgiven. 6, 15, Matthew 6, 15. But if you forgive not their sins, their trespasses, your father won't forgive you. Matthew 18 is dedicated to conditional forgiveness. I know this is hard for people to take because no one knows the Bible anymore. They think they can live with all this stuff and still go to heaven. And you've shouted and you've danced and you've prayed. And you might even spoke in other tongues. But if you got a root of bitterness, it's going to devour you eventually. And everything you do is going to be superficial. I'm not willing to do that. I want to pray for your healing. I want to pray for the deliverance of your body. But I also want to pray for the deliverance of your heart. We have to have a brand new heart and be free from the anguish and the fits and the hurt and the wound. Jesus made it clear that if you are forgiven, but then you fail to forgive. Here, watch this. The debt of your sin will come back to your account. No one can recover your sin, but you can. The issue is reopened. This is not widely embraced by our superficial religious culture, but Jesus left no room for personal interpretation. The master threw the unforgiving servant into prison. Read the words of Jesus, Matthew 18, 32. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had pity and mercy on you? And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all the he originally owed this Jesus said verse 35 is how my heavenly father is going to do to you unless you forgive your brother from your heart Ahithophel just couldn't let it go when the seed became a root and the root devoured his life you see both David and Ahithophel remembered David's sin Both were haunted by it and both were changed by it. The difference was that David laid on the ground and hung his head, exposed his life to God, and Ahithophel kept his bitterness hidden, waiting for the moment to strike. He wanted David to pay for what he had done. He waited a long time to get his revenge. Yes, bitterness is a grief. Yes, it's also found in death and loss and emptiness and sorrow. But those are not the same as an unresolved offense. I don't have the scripture here, but would you put up Proverbs chapter 14 and verse number 10? Without unchecked 
in an unchecked spirit, Proverbs 14 and 10. The heart knoweth his own bitterness. A stranger doth not intermeddle with his joy. You can't change it. No one can change it for you. But you know. Paul knew how destructive it could be. He preached it this way into the Ephesians and the church there. In Ephesians 4.31, he said, get rid of all of it. And get rid of anger and rage with it and brawling and slander. And then be kind. The King James says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be just put away from you with all malice. Just, and then be kind. Then forgive. They are in succession. One comes before the other. Kindness doesn't come first. No. I feel an anointing of the Holy Ghost on me. Now, I don't know if you can feel this, but I, I want you to know I am walking in the perfect will of God. And I am unwilling, and in fact, it's not even me that speaks this, but the Lord is unwilling to heal your, your temporal body, your frame, and not touch your broken and wounded spirit. He can deliver you from cancer, and he has and he will. He can deliver you from blood disease, and he has and he will. He can deliver you from all infections, and he can and he will. But he did not go to the cross just so you could have a brand new heart, or a brand new liver, or a brand new kidney, or a blood transfusion. He went to the cross so that you could have a brand new spirit. And no one's going to rejoice with you when you are delivered and you're healed from the infections of your body. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to dance. I'm going to shout. When God takes the diabetes away and when God takes the the hurt away and when God heals you from all kinds of infections and viruses, I'm going to be the one dancing and shouting. But there's something greater than that here today. The healer is in the house and the crown of thorns is on his head. And the bruising is internal. I stand here to proclaim the word of God that all bitterness and all wrath we got to put it away and then we're going to learn how to be kind. We're going to put all the way all the anger and all the offenses. Just stand there with me. Do you know how many people go in and out of church every week? They're going in and out of church and they're fulfilling a function of the church but they are dysfunctional in their life. No, 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 no. We're not going to play that game. We're not playing that game. We're not going to put on our Sunday go to meet and close and bury and let all that anger and all that malice and all that wrath. Hear me. You are not going to be forgiven. It's the word. But Jesus is the healer. Come on now. Jesus is the healer. I, I, I want someone today just to know Jesus can heal your heart and your mind and your spirit. He want to heal he wants to heal your emotions.
Let me, let me, let me, let me tell you something. You're not able to really have all of the friendships that you need. And here's the reason why. Cause you haven't put away anything. You'd like to be kind and affectionate. You want to have the whole family, but you're, you want to have all of that. But the Bible says first, let all bitterness be put away from you and then be kind and affectionate. And then something's going to change in your life because something's going to be free. Hear me. The seed is always present. Yes. Now listen, I don't have to understand what physical, emotional, sexual abuse, I don't have to understand it, and I cannot. Verbal abuse, the silent treatment, or rejection, I cannot understand it, but I don't have to. I don't have to understand it to tell you Jesus understands it. I couldn't heal you anyway, but the Lord can heal you. Don't think that anyone around you needs to be able to relate to you. They may never relate to you. You may be the only one here that's dealing with things that are so unique and twisted and torn up and a life that's wrecked. But I want to tell you, Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. And he drank the cup of bitterness for you so you don't have to drink it yourself. I want to say this is the day of jubilee for your life. And you're going to get over that because, because God's going to bring you over it. You can't get over it by yourself, but God's going to do it for you today. So I want to release you in the spirit. You are going to be healed of the root of bitterness. And the seed is going to be cast from you. And you are going to give it to God. And God's going to take it from you. There's a healer in this house today. There's a healer in this house today. Everything you've been holding on to for a long time and nobody knows. I proclaim today that the healer has just walked in and he can heal you of all diseases and he can also heal your broken heart and your wounded spirit. Oh! He healeth the broken in heart and he bindeth up their wounds. He healeth the broken heart and he bindeth up their wounds. He is the healer of all matters of sickness and disease and of heart issues and of emotion. Ah. That's right. Cry out to God. Let that come out of your spirit. Because the Lord wants to hear that. And the Lord's going to heal you today. You need a brand new heart. God wants to give you something brand new today. Don't walk away. He can do more than just heal diseases. He can heal your mind. Yadabashandarabashatayabahas. 